This service <clears throat> is not about plastic. But first, I'm going to talk about plastic. We know plastic is a problem. We have built underground and above ground mountains of landfills that are mostly plastic. There's a floating clump of it the size of Texas. I can't even wrap my mind around driving across Texas. So now imagine, imagine something that large floating in the Pacific Ocean. Sea creatures entangle in our plastic and swallow it and they suffocate and starve. And worse are the tiny particles, the microscopic but just as persistent bits that float in the water and imbue the soil and are found <clears throat> even in our blood. The health implications of all of this are still far from fully known. We created plastics because we wanted something light, resistant to breakage, transparent if necessary. It's incredibly varied in form and serves so many uses. It can be soft and flexible. It can be suitable for forming a part of the human body. It can be strong enough to build cars and houses. It's very useful stuff. Unfortunately, the very same qualities that make it useful make it hard to get rid of and ubiquitous. Much plastic that comes into our lives cannot even be recycled. Then again, recycling itself is energy intensive and polluting and most plastic that is labeled recyclable ends up in landfills or on the side of the road or in our soil or in our waterways. And so our congregation, UUCPA's Green Sanctuary Committee, drafted a policy we would do what we could with the small patch of earth for which we are responsible. Think globally, act locally. And by the way, if you want a way to think globally and act locally with this exact group of people, they meet today. They meet on the second Saturday each month at 1230 online. There's a link uh, right there in your order of service to uh, join the meeting today. Um, although I think they're not so much talking about the issue of the plastics policy that I'm about to bring up, but not today, but they're going to get to it soon. So let me tell you a little bit about that process, which again, is not only about plastic. So the Green Sanctuary Committee having the job of thinking about how can we have less of an impact on our environment, especially in the realm of energy, but in all sorts of ways. They saw single-use plastic as a problem that maybe we could tackle in one way. So they drafted a policy. They sent it to the board to review and think through, and the board said, 
Hmm, let's see. Well, I can see we can see a few tweaks we might make. And here's a major question. How will it be for Thatcher, our most long time and most important uh, renter, the, the daycare that, that lives here all through the week? Um, will they be able to do this, especially in COVID time? We want to make sure they're on board. Talk to Thatcher. Thatcher said, hey, we love it. We really try to reduce single-use plastic. And yes, um, during COVID, it's very difficult. There are some things that simply come, as we all know, um, wrapped uh, in one disposable piece of plastic, so we just can't avoid that. But we will do our best, and thanks so, so much for leading this way. Uh, we'll pass it on to our parents. So great. We said, sure, we'll work with you during COVID. We understand. The board sent it back to Green Sanctuary. Green Sanctuary tweaked it some, and it went into effect last month. There is no single-use plastic um, on our campus. We're not to bring it on uh, onto our campus or use it. It's been great for me. Um, it's a reminder to use my thermos, for example, instead of when I go and get a coffee, getting a piece of plastic that's going to get thrown out a few minutes later. This has plastic in it too, but mostly it's not, and it's going to last for years and years. <clears throat> but also right away we discovered how hard it was to honor this simple policy. Last week I talked about how nothing is unconnected. Well, plastic seems to be one of those things that just runs through our lives in so many ways and informs all our decisions. We started this policy during the month that Hotel de Zinc was here, people sleeping right here in our main hall and members of our congregation bringing them dinner each night. So the question arose, could we bring a, a chicken from Costco? You know, it comes in a big plastic container. Not in keeping with the policy. Could we bring a dish covered in plastic wrap? That's single use. Juice in a bottle? Or how about milk in a carton, which is um, compostable here in Palo Alto, but comes with a plastic cap? No good. It's really hard to adhere to this policy. Even when you remember things like, oh, I'm doing takeout, tell the restaurant, please don't put any utensils in the bag. I don't need them. I'm taking the food to a church which has metal, rewashable, many times reusable forks, knives, and spoons. It was a lot harder than that. So we'll keep considering, how are we going to do this? We've already done some compromising, as with COVID, as with the realization that things are especially hard for people who are homeless, who do not have the resources of reusable items that people have who live in permanent homes. And this policy has already caused us to change some of our behavior. Not just me remembering to bring my thermos every time, but we've um, gone to some trouble to make city water available to the people who are now going to be living here in the safe parking program. We want to be t able to tell them, you don't need to bring bottled water. We will have safe water for you. And hey, we have good city water. It's good to drink. So those are some changes that have already been driven by this policy. That's excellent. If we can't av completely avoid single-use plastic, this policy has already had one excellent effect. It has made us aware of just how ubiquitous single-use plastic is.
Now, we have a few things we can do when we discover something like that, a policy on the one hand and a real difficulty in actually carrying it out. Oh, I thought of another one since I wrote this down. We could lie. We could say, oh, yeah, I'm not bringing single-use plastic and stick it into the uh, recycling or the garbage. We're not going to do that. We can give up. We can just say, this just can't be done. Roll back the policy. It's not going to work. We can feel guilty. Such a simple thing we're being asked to do, and we can't seem to change our habits. Or we can realize that changing individual habits is not enough. And I am so grateful to the Green Sanctuary Committee and our board and this policy for giving us that message so clearly. We're getting closer to what this sermon is about. We are soaked in individualism. As products of the Enlightenment, both our country and this religious tradition put a very high value on individual liberty, individual rights, the sacredness of the individual conscience. And we were absolutely right to do so. Not only to break free of tyranny, but to take responsibility for our choices our actions, we must uphold the integrity of the individual. And like plastic, individualism can be toxic, useful, but also sometimes dangerous. One of the results of this individualism and the, the, the high focus that we have brought to it for 250 years is that we have forgotten so much about interdependence. We've forgotten how intertwined we are. We tend to look only to individual problems and individual solutions. We look only to individual solutions to corporate problems. We forget how to organize corporate responses. And I'm meaning this in at least two senses of the word. Corporate as in a corporation, the businesses that produce and send so much plastic our way, and also the sense of doing something as one body, working together, because we created these problems together. And then we try to put it on individuals to fix. <sighs> Is this by design? or by accident? Yes. The episode through line, which by the way, Ryan Holmes of UUCPA put me on to, wonderful uh, history podcast that is um, produced by National Public Radio. There is a um, one episode, which I strongly recommend you listen to um, in, in completely or, or read it. You can read the transcript as well on npr.org <clears throat> called The Litter Myth. Uh, talks about this problem, um, the plastic piece of the problem. So somebody ha they had on through line is named Heather Rogers, and she noted, if you're walking down the street today and somebody throws a wrapper on the sidewalk, people feel no reservations about telling that person that they should pick up that wrapper and put it in the garbage can. And we're not saying, why is there a wrapper? 
Why is there this wrapper that can be thrown away? We're saying this person's a bad guy, which is really profound. You know, she says, you know, yeah, it's better to recycle some things and throw them away. But again, it just takes us away from the deeper question that's really going to address the amount of pollution and waste that we're creating, which is what are the decisions that manufacturers are making? Why are they making those? And what kinds of changes can we implement that will alter how they're using materials and how they're polluting? You know, those are the questions that we need to be asking and answering. As environmentalists, we urge individual action. It's important, right? Drive a more efficient car. Turn off the water while you brush your teeth and collect the shower water as it's heating up. Put it in your garden. Don't buy bottled water. All good, and yet, too often we don't see the larger picture that we could drive less. We could drive individual cars much, much less if we built excellent transit. Just look at the places that have done it. We don't see that the water saved during toothbrushing and shower water heating is a drop in the bucket compared to the industrial uses of water, driven by the things that we buy and use, but invisible to us most of the time. And as for that bottle in the fridge, well, well, Throughline has some more to say about that. But I want to offer some of the ways that we could be thinking about putting individual power into corporate action. For example, some of our grocery stores have compostable bags in the produce section now. You know, that could happen even more if we suggested it and went to companies, went to grocery stores and said, what would it take for you to do that? Presumably, you haven't done it yet, even though you're aware of the possibility, because it's expensive. How much more expensive? How can we support you in making this change? We could ask the companies that we support what they would need to do in order to reduce packaging, which is one of the biggest sources of plastic in our waste stream. Say we loved to buy uh, computers that are wrapped in, um, in, in um, recyclable or compostable uh, items. Could you make it um, not plastic at all? Here's, here's how we could help you do that. Or here's some corporate action. We could back legislation that requires manufacturers of computers, of other appliances, of cars, to take them back and dispose responsibly of the plastic that are in them. Not to be punitive. This isn't because the manufacturers are bad people, but problem solving, saying, when I have this car and it's ready to go to the junkyard, I don't know what to do with these great big pieces of plastic. They're not recyclable. The junkyard can't do anything with them. Maybe if the manufacturers were responsible for doing something with them, they would say, oh, this is the kind of plastic we need to use. We need to use recyclable plastic, or we will use something different entirely. We'll find another solution because we're not just passing the problem along. But I said I'd get back to that bottle in the fridge. On Throughline, they asked, what about the 1940s, the 1950s? How did people eat and drink things then? 
Well, Heather Rogers says, and some of you will remember this, you would drink your soda or your beer, your milk, and then take the bottle back to the store. Or the milk delivery person would pick it up back up the next day from your doorstep or whatever. And that was the norm. And after World War II, you just have this rush of consumption and this massive capacity for manufacturing. There's this one plastics industry con conference, she says, I think it was in 1956, and one of the speakers at the conference looks out at the crowd at all the plastics manufacturers in the room, and he says to them, your future is in the garbage wagon. There's this real consciousness. If we can get people to throw things away, they will buy more stuff. Now again, it's not like manufacturers suddenly became evil in 1950. The whole system changed so that it became cheaper, easier, more convenient in many, many ways for people to produce plastic, to give us our juice in bottles we would then throw away, to give us straws that have a useful life of five to 20 minutes, not even averaging in the zero of the straw that goes straight from the manufacturer into the bag where you don't use it because you don't like straws, and then into the waste stream. If we're going to change the system so that it no longer makes sense for people to make these kinds of decisions, it makes sense for them to make the environmental decisions, we need to remember that we're not just individuals we can work together, we need to work together, because by the time it gets to one person's decision, the end user's decision, there aren't very many good choices. This sermon is not about plastic. This sermon is about what happens when we come up against the realization that we don't have good choices. And I'm so grateful to the UUCPA plastics policy for bringing us right up to it so our noses touch it. It blocks our way. Even though it's often invisible, with this policy, we come up right against it and we cannot ignore the fact that it's there, that it's blocking us from doing what we want to do. And we sit there in Costco and we say, how can I do this? I don't have any good choices. In the classic novel, A Wrinkle in Time, Meg Murray is searching for her father who disappeared mysteriously. If this is new information for you, you should go read the book. But <clears throat> for now, I'll fill you in. When she finds him, he's imprisoned in a clear column, which is in a small room. She rushes at him, but here I'm quoting from the book, when she reached what seemed to be the open door, she was hurled back as though she had crashed into a brick wall. Like the column itself, the room and what appeared to be a doorway into the room is transparent but solid. Meg is able to get into the room and into the column itself by putting on glasses that show the material as it really is. It rearranges before her eyes. 
making a way forward. In the column, it turns out, her father perceives only darkness. Once he puts on the glasses, he too can see that he is imprisoned within a clear material, smooth and solid, but it yields before the transformative lenses, the ones that see it as it is. I'm not talking about plastic. I'm talking about those moments when we see the structures that we or people long ago and far away have built and that give us too few choices, that present us with, well, I can bring these folks dinner or I can refrain from using single-use plastics. Well, I can <clears throat> drive a car to work and burn fossil fuels or use a lot of resources, or I can take a job right by where I live instead of offering a, th a third choice. I want a third choice. I want a transit system that gets us where we need to go so much more efficiently than cars. I want packaging that isn't made of stuff that you immediately throw away, that has a life of a few minutes or a few days. We see these structures when we put on these lenses of, I'm not just an individual, and I'm being asked as an individual to act as if that's all I've got, as if I'm not part of a body. This plastics policy is one of those spiritual gifts that helps us do the spiritual work of realizing we have a whole different kind of power than the power to just pick up our wrapper and put it in the trash. That's important. Do that. Don't put your wrapper on the ground, okay? And if it's a recyclable piece of plastic, we'll recycle it. But we can do so much more when we realize we're not just individuals. That attitude, that attitude of individualism is, is misdirection. It's causing us to look away from the real problem and from the solutions to our real problems. And it's causing us to feel lonely and helpless and guilty and scared instead of like the powerful beings we are the powerful beings who created plastic and created these systems by which we interweave, interlock our lives. We can use them. We just need to practice and we need to see that they're there, that they're a possibility. As I said last week, quoting, quoting Swedenborg, nothing unconnected ever occurs. There's nothing unconnected. We are all woven together. Our lives affect one another. And the decisions made long ago, before maybe you were born at a plastics manufacturing manufacturer's conference, are affecting us. But we are all together here in this world. And if we respond to each no-win decision by saying, why are these my choices? Why must I deal with this as an individual? And we look outside ourselves 
and we see what it's all made of, then amazing things happen. We have so much more power. Our world becomes so much more beautiful and more sustainable and more healthful and healthy, and it also becomes so much bigger.